Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. Monheimmicrophones.com. In 1943, founder William Green purchased McCoy Feed and Coal Company, and Primex Garden Center was born. Primex Garden Center is now in its fourth generation of green family ownership. They offer a wide selection of organic and conventional garden solutions, in addition to two fully stocked tropical houseplant greenhouses, along with annuals, perennials, trees, and shrubs. As the gardener's resource since 1943, Primex seeks to nurture both plants and people through quality, care, compassion, and community. Making your lives greener makes theirs brighter. Primex Garden Center is located at 435 West Glenside Avenue in Glenside, Pennsylvania. This podcast is being recorded on March 31st, 2023. Roby Babcock is the marketing director at Isley Nursery, a wholesale dwarf conifer and maple grower located in Boring, Oregon. Roby has a Bachelor of Arts in International Studies from the University of Oregon and a Master of Science in Landscape Architecture from the University of Arizona. After graduating from the University of Arizona, Roby managed an 11-acre cactus and tree nursery and did freelance design. When he returned to his home state of Oregon a decade later, he took a position at Portland Nursery and served in a variety of roles. Gardening has been a passion since his childhood, and he has created an expansive garden at his home that blends zone-defying cacti, agave, and succulents with specialty conifer specimens, manzanita, and plants native to the Pacific Northwest. Roby is a photographer and his passion has led to many opportunities, including his position at Isley Nursery. Developing social media content in combination with the Isley website, he helps to communicate information about Isley's plans and goals as a company. Currently, he is working with a team to produce the new catalog. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Roby. We're delighted that you could be with us today. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Yes, I'm excited to hear more about the nursery. Uh, did a deep dive on the website and man, it just takes me back to the earliest days of horticulture and being in college and looking at plants and being overwhelmed by their beauty and variety. And it's such a specialized nursery and evidently one of the top companies in the world as I understand it. How did you get into marketing? 
for Isley? Well, it's kind of a roundabout uh, experience for me. When I started out, uh, I've, I've always been into plants my entire life. So it was a natural fit for me. So I would go back to when I was going to school in University of Arizona for landscape architecture. I think that's when it really kind of took me to the next level. I learned a lot about design principles and it was uh, learning the programs like InDesign and Photoshop that I use every day. And even though I didn't exactly go into landscape architecture, I think it kind of set me up to do these sorts of things. And during that time, I also became really interested in photography and social media. So it was sort of the beginning of all of this. Um, I have been a photographer for more than a decade at this point. I went to Portland Nursery after being in the desert for about a decade uh, and kind of reconnected with the Northwest plants. And I was lucky enough to be able to go on a tour of the Isley Garden. Uh, I remember it being a very formative experience for me, being able to see all of these conifers, which I had started collecting myself in their full size, which was eye-opening to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> there was a, a photographer at the time that took a group shot of us, uh, Randy. I didn't know him at the time. And I remember thinking what an amazing position that would be to have a job as a photographer for a place like this with all of the gardens and the plants. So I'd say about several years later, Randy ended up retiring. And the person that was in the wings to take over that position did so briefly before uh, life took him in a different direction. The position opened up for me. I heard about the position, went through an extensive interview process, and luckily ended up with the job. April 11th was my first day. And just to clarify, are you from Arizona or from the American Southwest originally? No, I many generations in Oregon. So all of my family oh, okay. is here, but I, I went down to master's program in University of Arizona. So I was down there for about a decade. So I have kind of that duality of my taste for agaves and cacti, but also my <laughs> interest in ferns and moss and conifers. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's quite a, a compliment of plants because, you know, when we, we think about trees in the desert, we have these huge cactus and they actually play the same role as a big tree. Most people don't even think of that when we look at cacti and say, you know, they are the trees of the desert. Yeah, 100%. I ended up managing a cactus and tree nursery for three and a half years down on right on the edge of the desert in Tucson. Uh, we sold saguaro cacti, which would get about, you know, 15 feet tall with lots of arms. And you get birds that live in them. You have the fruit that is, is eaten by uh, birds and other animals. And yeah, it's, it's a different ecosystem, but there's a lot of parallels. Exactly. What do you think uh, motivates your clients when they're visiting? And uh, I, I'm assuming, I notice you have a nationwide sales force, right? So you're shipping all over? Correct. Yeah. It, it's a pretty diverse customer base, really. We sell from Louisiana to New York to Vancouver, BC. So all across the US and Canada. But I think what Isley is typically known for, one thing that we hold as a high priority is quality. The nursery started in 1975 and there have been a lot of changes since then, but it's definitely been a number one focus is when you look at an Isley plant, that it looks how it's supposed to look, that everything we ship out is, is up to that level of quality. I will honestly say that the pieces that I got from Isley, every one of them is picture perfect. They are spot on looking, there's, there's, they're just perfect in every way. And when you go into a retail outlet, like a local garden center who carries them, you're stopped in your tracks when you see them because they are so perfect in their, in their, their little containers, sometimes bigger containers. But here in the East, we usually see them in the smaller containers. And 
you know, people are collectors of them. And they are just as important uh, in our environment as a big plant because they're they're small, but they get um, very intense growth on the inside, especially the, the Camia cypress, for example, where they're very tight and there's lots of, of foliage on them. But they, the root systems are very robust and extended. So, you know, I think all of that goes into what I like about Isley. Your product stands out on the shelf. It's, there's nothing else like it. Well, thanks for saying that. I feel the same way. I mean, again, I was collecting these before I ever got a job here. So it's something that drew my eye. I look at them more as uh, showpieces, kind of collector's items. I mean, certainly you can use them in a variety of fashions, but I think a lot of the things we sell are kind of meant as uh, careful additions to a garden. And I think the longevity of it, when I think about you know the changes in the Isley Garden, for example, I get to do a little bit of dabbling in uh, redesigning sections of it, or at least that's something that I'm going to be doing more of. And just thinking about how it grows over time. So, you know, you may acquire a small plant, but over time, it definitely will develop. So horticulture, as we know, has so many specializations, Roby. And I'm just wondering, do you think that the, the people that buy your company's trees, do you, do you see evidence of, of uh, high specialization like bonsai or, or just the conifer people? Or do you feel like a lot of Isley's plants find their way to a distinctly urban market? Well, I, I was thinking about how I, I would say our customers are about as diverse as our cultivar offerings, really. Uh, and since I'm in charge of the social media, I get to interact with a lot of them. I'm not in the sales department, so I'm not actually interacting in that way. But because I kind of get a catch-all from Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, I'm interacting with all these different um, interests. So we do have a lot of bonsai people. We have a lot of collectors, Japanese gardens, urban, rural, pretty much everything. And, and because we do offer so much uh, diversity, it's interest and geography. Just because of all the different places that we sell, I think there's a lot of diversity in that. I think it's really wonderful that I can say that people in the city have no excuse for not having a tree because you don't have to have a big one. Nobody ever tells you what size you have to have, but you could have a 12-inch tree in your garden or you could have a 12-inch tree on your patio. And people use all kinds of excuses as not to have a tree. Mm-hmm. But a small tree like that is not going to rip up your sidewalk and it's not going to destroy uh, your neighbor's whatever. And you could have it looking good and it is doing a function within the environment, which I think is the most important part of any plant that we, we have out there when we talk about trees. Even the smallest of trees are going to purify the air. They're going to make a healthier environment, uh, make people more aware of living beings of trees. Uh, I don't know what your thought is on that, but... Create a little habitat. And also create a little habitat. Oh, absolutely. And I think at Isley, we have so many dwarf conifers and even dwarf maples, things that don't take up a lot of space. On our website, we always list the garden size. It's usually about a 15 to 20 year window of where the ideal size is for a plant based on the growth rate and what the size expectations are for that. But I think one thing to keep in mind with conifers is they do continue to grow beyond that. So it's good to get something if you are in a tight space, either that's going to be very narrow or has a slow rate of growth. And certainly there's lots of options for that. Well, there's one particular one that I'm thinking. And um, do you carry Taylor, Juniperus virginiana Taylor by any chance? 
We do, yes. Okay, so I, not... there's, that's a really great example of, I talk to my students and teach that plant at Longwood Gardens, and I always say to them, this is a great tree for the city because it's narrow, mm-hmm. it doesn't get more than three feet wide, and it's tall, and it's a habitat. It's perfect for habitat in the city where you might need a little softening against a big wall or a corner of a building or something like that, where you get this wonderful um, growth structure and habitat Mm -hmm. at the same time. Roby, I have a question. Since I will confess that dwarf conifers are a mystery for me right now, what do you typically regard as the toughest genus for the plants that you're sending out across the nation? I think that depends on how you define tough. As far as cold tolerance, I think Picea pungens is a very good one. We have the Mugo pine line, uh, the True Dwarf line, good to zone two. Those are definitely going to be pretty tough plants. Um, and I'd say, I'd say the Mugo pines are a pretty good one, honestly. Uh, they can take drought and heat. We are pretty mild climate-wise here in general, but we did get that heat wave, I think it was two years ago, where we got up to 116, which is unprecedented here. Our true dwarf conifers didn't have any burning from that. They handled it pretty well. Um, I think I think that would be the one that I would pick. And would that also fit the bill for like uh, compacted soils, disturbed soils, things like that? I would say so. I mean, I think conifers are pretty flexible in general. They're pretty tough plants. Okay, and I'm assuming that would also mean for uh, that they would find a home in, in container plantings within reason. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you have the right size container. Yeah. They, they like good drainage, so I think containers are a pretty good option for a lot of them. Yeah, gotcha. the, the muco pine is seen a lot down in South Philadelphia in the city um, where people have very narrow sidewalks, but they, they have to have their green out front. And, <laughs> and mugo pine is usually what I see. And I've seen many of your plants purchased. I could actually see the little tags on in the pot that says, I sleep nursery, just FYI. <laughs> very nice to hear. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking with social media, uh, I'd love to talk about that a little bit. It must give you an opportunity to kind of put your finger to the wind as, in terms of upcoming trends and such. Are you able to gauge that from what people are giving you in terms of comments and feedback? Yeah, 100%. I mean, like I was saying before, I, I've been a photographer for over a decade and a lot of that is just on social media. And so I'm kind of used to interacting people in that way and putting my, my images out there. Um, so I think it's a great way to kind of put your finger to the wind, so to speak. Uh, with Isley, it really gives me an opportunity not only to research all of these things that I'm posting and kind of learn with the thing, you know, people that are seeing these posts, but also to get their reactions to it and their questions. So for me, social media has been a huge learning opportunity and also a great opportunity to share what, what I've learned with people. How long have you been involved with the social media end of things? Early onset, like 10 years or... Um, I think, I mean, I first got onto Facebook sharing probably in 2008, but I really got my photography career started on Instagram. So I'd say more recently, but yeah, about 10 years is what I would say um, more seriously. So I have my photography page and then I also have a garden page. So I've kind of been doing this for a long time. Now I'm just doing it for an actual job. That makes it very nice, doesn't it? <laughs> 
Exactly. So it's sort of like I've learned a lot of the hard lessons before I got here. So uh, it, it makes it a little bit easier to make good decisions. And that definitely makes you a seasoned marketer. <laughs> so after a day, Roby, of working screens and engaging on social media in, on, in multiple formats, are you able to close the laptop at the end of the day and walk out in the garden and, and lose yourself? Well, I suppose that's... <sighs> I never really get away from my phones, but it's something I enjoy. But the great thing about this is I can open my door and go out into the garden. And technically, it's part of my job. So we have vans that you can drive around on the farm because it is such a large place. And so, you know, I could just go out and photograph, you know, the different greenhouses, take a walk in the garden, photograph the things that are happening. And I like to do that on a regular basis for my own screen time, but also just to kind of see what has been happening out there. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I think we all have a, our own relationship with technology and social media. For me, as an arborist, a lot of the people that climb trees have outfitted their hard hats with GoPro. And so, you know, it, it's almost like the two worlds meld into one. You're mm-hmm. seeing live footage of someone up in a tree pruning a, you know, a tulip tree or something like that. And then you leave the house and go for a walk and, hey, there's a tulip tree right in the neighborhood. You know, the, the lines blur a little bit for me, at least. My question is, what do you see coming down the line for new plants, Roby? I know you have quite a bit coming on. What can you share with us, kind of peeking behind the curtain? Well, uh, can I mention a couple that we just released more recently? Absolutely. And then- Okay. We're, we're all ears. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I guess the first I'd like to explain about the Jack Frost and the Pacific Rim collection for our, our what we're calling Asian maples. So it's a cross between the Korean maple and the Japanese maple. We take the artistic beauty and the leaves of the Japanese maple and combine it with the hardiness and the sturdiness of the Korean maple. Korean maple is also hardier down to zone four. So we test them out. If they test down to zone four and they've been selected due to their particular qualities, they are entered into the Jack Frost collection, which expands their range into the upper Midwest. Uh, If they don't meet that, then they're only hardy to zone five, but we still like them for their qualities, then they're entered into the Pacific Rim collection. So both are the hybrids, but uh, different zones essentially defining them. Uh, so more recently, we've had two members added into the Pacific Rim collection, Wabi Sabi and Origami. Uh, Wabi Sabi is a weeping maple. We just planted uh, one in the garden last summer. Definitely one of my favorites. It has nice red seeds in the spring. It's got nice contrast between the green leaves and the white stems or like lighter stems. And then a nice orangey red color in the fall. And then Wabi Sabi, if I understand correctly, is sort of celebrating the beauty of the imperfection of nature. The other one that we uh, released was Origami. It's an upright. It's more, I would say, more of an oval shape in its form. The structure is more curvy. And the reason it's called Origami is that the leaves, the newer leaves, look like paper cranes. Uh, It's a green maple, and then it has more of an orangey color in the fall. So those are great ones. Um, We do have a couple that will be coming out perhaps either this year or into the next that will be added to the collection, although I can't really say too much about them. They do have names now, and we should be releasing more information soon. And I hope to be adding those things on the social media, which hasn't really been done in the past. But as we release new plants, I think that's the goal. And we would love to have those links. So let us know when they come out, and we'll, we'll put them on for you. 
Absolutely. Another thing that we, uh, I guess there's a lot of things that were released this recently. Moonstone is a Piscea pungens that we have released more recently. And it's a combination with Hoopsty and uh, the, uh, or Globosa. So Globosa, it will eventually get a leader. And so it, it will grow faster, but uh, you do need to prune it to keep it in that rounder form. But Moonstone does not have a leader. It will stay as a multi-branched globular Icea pungens. And it has a more icy blue color, which is kind of what a lot of Isley breeding does. It improves upon existing cultifiers, whether that's the shape or the color or the texture or the size. And so that's one of the more recent ones that we've released. We have been losing a lot of our Picea pungents. I mean, the standard Picea pungents. I mean, I can walk down streets now and just see half bare from a needle cast. And mm. I, I'm wondering if these are more resilient than the uh, species. I'm not sure that I could speak to that, um, but I, I have been hearing about that. And I think that's one of the things I'm, I'm becoming more aware of. I'm going to have to learn more about some of those propensities. But I, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, now here in the East, we're having a, a lot of problems, and especially in our area where we've lost a lot of our suga mm -hmm. from the woolly adelgid uh, and be also because of heat. And we've lost a lot of our, our spruces. And I've even noticed that even our Norway spruces are dropping needle like crazy. I have a couple clients that have had you know, needle cast from their Norway spruces. So I'm kind of concerned about that. There's tried and true conifers from your company that will withstand our ever-increasing heat here in the east and the high humidity. Mm. And I would imagine that many of those would be in the Camiocyparis group or the Cupressus. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about them, if there's any ones that you could actually recommend or think are cute or in, the, in that category. Gosh, let me see. Do you have dra like a black dragon, uh, Camiocyparis obtusa? It's a black dragon. It's a very vertical form. And I'm, I'm sure that the, not everybody knows all of them because there's so many conifers that you carry. I can't even imagine knowing them all. Yeah, it is. It is a little overwhelming. I, I know them when I'm all looking at the catalog, but it is a lot of names to uh, to get into my head. I know the Cryptomeria Black Dragon. You're talking about the Camiociparis? Camiociparis? Yes, I'm sorry. Um, oh. There's Cryptomeria Black Dragon. And I was, I think I was, I was thinking of the, um, the narrow form of the Camiociparis obtusa. It's a tall, narrow structure. Okay, let me just bring that up. Yeah. Uh, I will say anecdotally, a couple of our guys just attended a seminar put on by Penn State. And, you know, what they came away with was be real cautious with what you're choosing to plant in the conifer family. You know, I think we're really in limbo and in a state of flux about what's going to work for southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, because uh, Eva listed a few. Uh, Douglas fir is another one. Yeah, it's gone. Is just uh, the ship is sailed. Oh, really? Yeah, and we have to look to the south, or what I was told by a climate scientist that Philadelphia now has the climate of South Memphis, Tennessee. How do you like that? Oh, really? Okay. Yes, yeah, that, that's a problem. It's a, it's a problem for us because you know that was a standard Christmas tree, Doug Fur, but 
Now it's the con color fur. So I'm not sure if you have anything in the con color group that, because that's very resilient here right now. Con color. Um, it has a citrusy fragrance and it has a more glaucous appearance to it. And that one there for a long time was not in this area. And then all of a sudden it became a prime Christmas tree. Um, and I, I haven't really seen any miniature forms of it or variations of it, maybe because it's so new that I haven't seen anything that's uh, smaller or a lot of cultivars in it. Oh, that could be the case. Not, nothing is coming to mind on that. Well, let me see. It would be AB's con color. Oh, AB's, that's right. AB's con just... color. See if you could find something on that in there. You might, I think it's too new of a tree. It's a, it's a native tree, but it's... It could be the case. I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds of cultivars, so... Um, right. But I'm not sure about that. So, yeah, you do have other... You do have some other plants that are unusual, that are deciduous. I think you have some katsura. Is that correct? Do you have... We do. Do you the yes. katsura? Can you give us a little bit about the katsura, the uh, Cercidophyllum japonicum, as its Latin name? Yeah, um, and we do have in the garden, we have the Mor- Morioka weeping. The weeping one, yes. Yeah, That's yeah. That's stunning. That's a stunning one. And um, mm-hmm. again, smaller gardens, city-sized gardens, or you know something that you could put on a lawn if you wanted to in a smaller space. Beautiful fall color, great fragrance, beautiful spring green color. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, yeah, a nice golden color in the fall. Um, I've really, I've really enjoyed the ones. We have two of them in the garden right now. As far as we really don't have, we don't have a lot right now. It's our Cidophyllum, just that one and the Red Fox. Okay. They're both really wonderful variations. And I think that that's something that collectors would love too, if they were out for something that's a little bit different. You know, I remember in the 70s when the conifer gardens came out, people were planting them like crazy. And I've planted many because they were going to be low maintenance. But what people realized was there was no color change. There was no leaf color change. And especially here in the Northeast, When a couple years had passed and the people saw that there was no change in the, the deciduous, you know, leaves changing and all that, they decided, mm-hmm. hey, we don't want a conifer garden. But then I thought it was pretty smart that some people said, well, you know what? If you put a Japanese maple in or if you put a katsura in or if you put something that's deciduous, that's smaller, even a dogwood, mm-hmm. uh, some type of dogwood, you would get color that would compensate for that loss of all that color that you would typically have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think that that's, you know, one of the things, if you're a conifer collector, you always want to have something that's going to give you some color in the fall too. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things with the garden that we do have is that we, I'd say 80% of what we grow is conifers. And then we do have a lot of maples, but there are some companion trees and shrubs that we do have that kind of mix things up. We have some great ginkgos oh. uh, in the garden. We have jade butterflies, American, some nice, good, small ones. Uh, and I would say one of the things I really like is the Father Gilla that we have. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, Father Gilla. That's great. Fabulous. Nice, large specimens in the garden, and they probably should be blooming for too long. Well, do you, do you carry any um, hemimalis at all? We don't. Uh, one of my favorite trees, but no, we do not. Okay. So you have, you have, still have quite a, 
quite a bit of uh, deciduous material there uh, included with your conifers. Now, you do have topiaries too, right? I see one topiary right behind you. Yeah, in the parterre. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's, that, that's our parterre. We do. We have ICR. Um, we have what we call the gallery where we have all the large specimens of giant boxes of maples and whatnot. And in that area, we have a lot of topiary as well. So we have several different pines that we prune into different forms. And then we do have the spiral topiaries as well. It's, yeah, it's pretty impressive. Do you sell a lot of those? I mean, we definitely sell them. I would say as a proportion of the farm, it's a pretty small proportion, but we definitely sell a fair amount. Especially for a formal garden, they're great. Absolutely. It's definitely a statement piece. The bulk of your shipping, what size containers are you normally sending stuff out as? I guess I'm not quite as knowledgeable about all of the specifics as far as the sales go. That's something that I'm slowly getting yeah. into. But I, I mean, sure. I certainly see a lot of three and six gallons and one gallons go out. That's what I was thinking, um, yeah. I mean, we do have a whole section of the farm that's box maples and box things. But I would say yeah, a lot, a lot oh. of it is going to be in that range, I would imagine. Okay. Yeah, it almost seems like the boxed material might stay on the West Coast because I, I, I sure don't see, see it don't out see here. We don't see it here. We don't see it nearly. Oh, yeah. you don't? No. no. And I think mm-hmm. you also can buy collections, can't you? Like you can buy an assorted collection of, of miniature or, or smaller containers. I know we see them in small containers. I don't even know what size that would be. Uh, maybe, what, two quarts or something like that? That would be a small tree. And you can buy a series of them or you can buy them in a collection. Right. So it's it's our fanciful gardens. Yes. And so they're essentially, we call them RGBs, but or they're four-inch containers. And I believe that the nurseries buy them in boxes of 25, I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. But yes, we have different collections. There's like a gold collections, different collections. And uh, I think they're kind of fun to, to work with. And a lot of bonsai... Uh, collectors use them as well because they're a nice size to start with. Right. It's one of my favorite places to go is going out to the greenhouses where we grow them and you just see just seas of these little four-inch pots. Um, they're, they're pretty fun. And that's what I like to see when I go to the garden center because then I know the up-and-coming cultivars when I see those small containers. Right. I know that you know they're going to get bigger, but you can keep them small if you're bonsaiing them. Um, but really fabulous, fabulous plants. So a plant like uh, ginkgo biloba, uh, jade butterflies, it, it, does that have dwarf or semi-dwarf qualities to it? Uh, let's see, jade butterflies. I mean, it's it's definitely going to stay on the smaller side. Okay, I mean, We're listing it as 10 by 8, so it's certainly going to be smaller than a full-size ginkgo. Sure. Um, but American, for example, is going to be even smaller than that. So... American. Okay, I see. Yeah, Yeah. here in the Philadelphia region, I mean, we have the ancient, the oldest ginkgo in the country. So we, when we think of ginkgo, we're looking at a ginkgo that's 70 feet tall or 60 feet tall, and they're in the city. And especially when you go into Fairmount Park, we see these enormous, I have some beautiful photos of the enormous trees in the fall and their full yellow uh, regalia. And they're just stunning. You, you just, it, it just takes your breath away when you see them. So even in the small size, they're also equally uh, breathtaking. Uh, at least I think they are. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, so you see the parterre out the window behind me. And just west of that, we have this American in the garden. Last fall just really caught my eye every time I went outside. And they get about six by six. So it's much more contained. But when they are, you know, in their full golden color, it's really quite striking. And I think, you know, they're going to grow very slowly as well. So it's going to be a very contained plant, great for containers or small gardens. Yeah. I wanted to circle back, Roby. You had mentioned that you ship plants out once they kind of pass muster with uh, surviving in zone four. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that you guys do your own vetting or testing with dormant plants to see if they can withstand temperatures that, I don't know, are dropping down into the 20s or something like that? So I I guess I can't get overly specific with the process, but my understanding is yeah. we do have, I think it's the University of Minnesota. It's out in Minnesota where we have a freezer that we actually can test plants down to a, okay. a certain temperature. And I think it's based upon the death of the bark, whether or not they're surviving that. And then there's a, a cooler test that we can do here, I, I think with dry ice possibly. Okay. But basically, yeah, you, you know, it's based on that. One, one of the things that I'm asked, though, is like with all things, if it goes down to X zone, is it really good in that this particular area? And I think that the question is always gets down to the specifics of environmental. Perhaps if it's on the border of a zone, it probably would survive there. But there may always be some factors that may change depending on the location. Well, and I also think that our industry is very um, conservative when it lists its zones they always list a zone higher than what it would be because they don't want anybody dissatisfied. Correct. And I know that from being in the industry and, you know, doing PR, that you always want to err on the side of caution for your clients. And the worst thing that could happen is listed in zone five and it doesn't survive in zone five (laughs) because, you know, you had one of those freaky winners and everybody that had one, they're gone. Um, that's that's not something you want to have happen. So you'll say zone six, you know, if you want right. to try in zone five, that's up to you, but don't blame it on us if it doesn't survive. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that goes back to the timeline. You know, there's extensive testing before we release something going on to what you're saying is we don't want to obviously misrepresent the hardiness of something. So it could be 20 years of making sure this is exactly what it needs to be before we actually give it out to the public. Well, I do know that our garden communicators organization, there are many people in that organization that like to push zones, including myself, and to see how uh, that plant's going to do in either in a colder or a hotter environment, in in a microclimate, how's that going to do? And um, that's also something Mm -hmm. that your company and a lot of other nurseries, they have people out there that are gardeners that are testing your plant material also that give you information back. And I find that to be incredibly helpful for the consumer because you're not in a university setting now, you're in a home garden setting. And Mm -hmm. that information coming back is is critical for, maybe you find something out about the plant in a home garden that that didn't happen in in a university setting. 
Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I think that's a great connection that we have with the garden writing organization is being able to send our plants out and get some really thoughtful you know, responses as to how it's been doing. And uh, I know that we do have uh, some things in the wings coming out that we will probably be sending out in the future. Absolutely. And I think that to a lesser extent, social media also. I mean, I get lots of feedback of people, how their plants are doing all over the country. I think for from my perspective, I mean, yes, I have Arizona experience and I have Oregon experience, but you know, Pennsylvania is a whole different thing and the humidity in the summer. And so I'm kind of learning how plants do in all these different regions as well. It's, it's a very interesting fact-gathering experience. Well, and I think that that's what makes good nursery a good nursery is that you're constantly testing, you're constantly sending out information and sending out plant material to trial in these areas so that you're getting your feedback. And a lot of people don't realize that that's why we have botanic gardens. Botanic gardens are always testing trials in in their own facilities on their farms. And I know Longwood Gardens is always testing. Uh, Morris Arboretum is always testing. You know, they go out on these Mm -hmm. explorations, they bring plants back and they put them into the collections and they see how they do. But also people in the nursery trade send them to those same gardens and to see how they're they're actually faring in, in different conditions. And certainly we find out a lot about a plants that way as well. And, you know, when people go to visit and they see something that they've never seen before, they want it. Mm-hmm. But you also have to let them know if it's going to survive. And that's one of the really good ways to figure that out. And your company's very good at that. I know that for a fact. One of the uh, plants that I... I can't get too specific about that we will be releasing soon. That's one of the first things that I started doing here is to continue taking monthly photographs of its leaves and its shape and just documenting it through the entire growth season because there are all these changes. And with a new plant, you just don't know exactly how it's going to look. And with different weather conditions, it can affect how it responds. And so it's just documenting all of these things. And a lot of the obviously garden plants are cultivars that we've already released, but there are some that are brand new and they're growing into specimens uh, for us to kind of learn from. Did you happen to take any pictures when it was 116 degrees? I wasn't here yet, um, but I have pictures. <laughs> I, ha- I have pictures from that, that summer and, uh, you know, it, it was a tough summer. <laughs> there must have been some losses. You know, I think... Maybe they had the supplemental irrigation. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. We use recycled water from the city of Sandy nearby, and, and it's all recycled on site. So we are able to actually water everything okay. as needed. And certainly there are some cultivars that may have more burning issues. But it's amazing how the farm is set up. There's a lot of shade options that can be brought up if need be. But I think... 116 for here is just tough for a lot of things. So certainly there was some damage. I would say 116 anywhere is a little bit over the top. It's true. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we laugh now, but uh, strap in. We may have to. We might have more. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, you've been great, Roby. I've learned a lot. You've been a great guest. And um, I'm fascinated by... I mean, one of my takeaways is just going to be to learn more about dwarf plants, dwarf conifers, and even dwarf deciduous. And I appreciated Eva's comments about balancing out that dwarf conifer with a little color color coming off a deciduous tree. 
berry set or or fall color. Oh, do you have a favorite tree? Uh, you know, that's a really hard one to answer, but I think what I'm going to go with is Acer Grissium. Um, it's one of my favorites. It's I have one in my garden. It's got interest all year. Um, and we actually grow them here and we have some great specimens in the garden. You Very have Acer Grissium. Nice. Yeah. Well, that is, a, that's a wow. <laughs> that is a wow. <laughs> You know, you never forget when you see your first Ace of Grissio. You never forget it. Oh, I like that. that. There's a tagline. You can use it if you want, Robin. <laughs> you never forget it. I remember the first time I saw Ace of Grissio was in England. We were all there on a horticultural expedition. And there in this one garden, there were three of them. And the daffodils were blooming underneath. And the sunlight was shining through their bark. Mm-hmm. And it was so breathtaking. We all just stopped and we were quiet for the first time in the whole trip. Just, we all were quiet. <laughs> And that's hard to do for It's us. a very dignified, very dignified species. There's no. It is. It's a very dignified species. Yeah. It keeps everyone quiet or heavily Absolutely. breathing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really appreciate you being on the podcast, Roby. Thank you. This is fun. We wish you luck. I hope the company continues to grow and succeed. And I'm going to start looking for your uh, plant labels on my next garden center visit. Yes. All right. <laughs> Triangle tags. Triangle tags. You got it. Thanks, Roby. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. The Planetrillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.